some really cool news, which is um, this week, um, uh, at the beginning of the week, Karen Armstrong went and she had uh, some tests done. Um, and th- the, the doctors basically said, hey, look, Karen, um, it doesn't look really good uh, in terms of what we're going to do in terms of surgery. Um, uh, we think you're going to have hyperplasia, uh, which is like a, um, a form of um, cells regenerated in a way that they shouldn't, that can lead to cancer. Um, we have looked at all your parathyroids. We don't think you're, we're going to be able to salvage anything. Um, and so they had done these scans and it was like, hey, we think this is a worst case scenario. And the Bradfords and, and Tanya and I went over um, and we prayed for Karen and we did what the scripture says. James says, if any are sick, let them call on the elders of the church, let them anoint with oil and pray. And the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous avails much. And, um, and we don't look at that as like a... a like a magic promise, like you do this and automatically everything's perfect. Um, But for some reason, God in his um, wisdom has chosen things that look absolutely foolish, like preaching um, to accomplish his purposes and anointing someone with oil and praying for them in the name of Jesus and asking for healing to anybody on the outside looks foolish. And, and yet, um, uh, Karen went in for surgery. Um, they were able to, uh, she had two complete parathyroids that, uh, were not, uh, damaged that didn't need any kind of, um, uh, treatment. There was no hyperplasia that they, all the things they saw in the scans weren't there. And, um, so, um, I think a number of things, God answered a prayer. Um, and part of God answering that prayer was not just for Karen's health, but, uh, it created opportunities for, uh, conversations with their kids that, um, I think that, that, that really opened up a door for them to see God's at work. Um, so, uh, just, I, I tell you that to encourage you and we'll, we'll praise God and, and thank him for that. Um, please, uh, continue to pray for Gina. Uh, she's continued to have treatment and, um, uh, have uh, quite a bit of nausea after those treatments and pray for Bobby. Bobby uh, had the surgery that went sideways and and they basically had to undo the surgery, you know, less than a week later. And he's got like a form of sepsis in his bone uh, the, and, and that he's on uh, an, like antibiotics all the time. He's got an IV drip of, of antibiotics and he can't work. Um, and so just pray for uh, his healing. And, um, and then uh, Ed Rouse is uh, up North with his mom. We're just continuing to pray for Molly's healing. So um, let's, let's uh, pray for them this morning and uh, thank the Lord for what he's done in Karen's life and, um, and just ask him to do uh, incredible miracles uh, in all these other scenarios. Our Father, we love you and we know that you are the healer and that you are the great physician. Lord, we know that uh, the fact that you choose to invite us in, to allow us to pray and to say that the effectual fervent prayer of those you have made righteous avails much is... Um, it, it, it's a stunning thing for us because you don't need us. You, if, if we kept silent, the very rocks would cry out your praises. And so, Lord, it's not ever about us or about our faith. It is that our faith is in you and that you are 
able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we can ask or imagine. And so, Lord, thank you for what you did in Karen's body. Thank you for the healing that you brought. Thank you for the amazement that doctors had as they said, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't, the, what we see doesn't look like the scans. Lord, I thank you that it's created opportunities for Karen and Ian to, to have conversations with their kids. I pray that, that the wholeness that she's experiencing physically will, uh, will spread and, and the things that she's able to uh, share about your goodness and your glory will be a testimony to your grace. Father, thank you. Lord, we pray for Gina. We pray for Bobby. Lord, I ask for complete healing in their bodies. I ask that, that we will be able to celebrate what you have done, that we will be able to point and say, our God did that. Lord, I pray that, that Gina and Bertrand's kids will grow in their faith because they see you care for their mom. Lord, I pray for Bobby's son, that, that he will see your hand at work in his dad and that he will be drawn to your grace and to your love. Lord, I, I pray for um, not just the physical healing of, of Gina and Bobby, but that for the spiritual healing of those who are watching their lives, that they will uh, be drawn to a God who is good, who is gracious, who is powerful, who is able to do amazing things. Lord, I, I pray for uh, Ed as he's traveling. I pray for Molly. I ask that you will touch her body, that you will give her healing, Lord. I pray that uh, Ed and his brother talk about what to do about their mom and dad going forward, that you'll give them great wisdom and, and, and direction. Lord, I, I thank you for our church body. I thank you that we uh, have folks who are uh, loving you and, and living in community with each other, even some from a great distance. Thank you, Lord, that the Rose and Clayton and Rex can be with us this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that if for each of them as they're doing their ministry, that you will bless them going in and bless them going out. You will bless the work of their hands. Lord, that everything that they touch will be blessed by you. And I pray that that your gospel will go forward because of their lives. Lord, we, we thank you for for them, and we ask for your, your blessing on their ministries. Lord, as, as uh, Steve Moore's flying this weekend, um, doing a, an audition for a job, Lord, I would pray that you will um, more than give him skill, that you'll give him favor, that he will be able to uh, gain favor in the eyes of this potential employer, and that, that it will provide work for him and, and provide a means of, of uh, taking care of his family. Lord, we know that um, uh, work is a gift given to you before the fall, and that it is something that, that we do and we reflect your image and that we uh, get to do it as, as part of our uh, role as image bearers here on this earth. And Lord, I ask that you will allow him to have good, honorable work that is, uh, allows him to, to care for his family. Lord, thanks so much for this time of worship. Thank you that we get to bring before you all of our cares and all of our needs. Lord, I ask that you will uh, open up our eyes this morning to your word, that you will allow uh, our eyes to be open, our ears to listen, our hearts to be receptive to what it is that you want to teach us, because all scripture is given by God, and it is inspired, and it is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and righteousness, that we might be fully equipped. And Lord, I just ask that you will equip us this morning by your grace and by your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, next week, um, we are going to have a, a, a bit of a special treat in that um, I have asked uh, Rex to, um, to preach, um, and it's been a while since we have heard from him, and I'm uh, very grateful that he is, uh, is going to do that, and so uh, I, am, I am looking forward to that. Um, so we'll send it around an email because there are uh, definitely some people who are going to want to uh, want to know about that. Um, uh, as I was thinking about Nehemiah, uh, we've been in Nehemiah now the last couple of weeks. I was reminded of um, uh, about three years after high school. So after my second year of college, I took a year off to lead a, uh, a, a music team. And, uh, and so I was given charge of about 20 people and we were going to travel for a year. And there was all these people, um, singers and sound people, et cetera. Um, and we kind of split into two teams and we would go kind of our separate ways for two or three days and then come back together. And, and, uh, we were always together on the weekends. And, um, and one of the things that, uh, I realized looking back is that, um, uh, I might have been too young to be invited into um, uh, a role like that. I there was a, a lot that I just did not know about um, leadership, and most of what I had learned about leadership I had learned either as a um, captain on a soccer team or in kind of fundamentalist settings uh, in churches and schools. And so um, I, I realized that I was having a hard time um, having uh, people who were entrusted in my care follow me. Um, but part of that was um, the way that I led. The way that I led was um, often from the position, like, hey, they told me that I'm in charge, um, or um, uh, I would do what I would do on a soccer field, which is to try to like browbeat or shame into doing things. It was not a healthy thing. And, and I realized I wasn't doing a good job. And I realized that um, uh, like I wasn't really prepared. And there were twice during that year that I came really close to quitting because I just thought, like this, this is not working because I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I was fortunate in the last three months of that year to um, be like the teams were sent to two camps, one in New York, one in Florida. And I was sent to a camp in Florida with, with a group of people. And uh, the, the guy who directed the, that camp, his name was Tom Phillips. Um, and he kind of stepped in and was willing to be a, a mentor for me. And I remember him pulling me aside after observing my leadership for a period of time and saying, um, hey, Tim, um, you are right on track for middle management. Um, and he, he just said, look, if you want to be more, if you want your leadership to grow, then part of what you need to learn is you don't lead from a position. Um, what you lead from is uh, a deep care and concern for people, um, taking initiative for their good, and then you lead from a life of consistency um, that that allows them to see that that you know who you are and your character is worth following. And um, and he showed me uh, Acts chapter four where it, it talks talks about the disciples and it talks about Peter and, and the others that they, that, um, they were unlearned, ignorant men, and yet people took note of them that they had been with Jesus. Um, I, I, um, uh, that reminded a couple weeks ago when I asked Rex to pray, um, 
man, as soon as Rex started praying, there was a, a, a sense of gravity in his words and a sense of there's a guy that's been with Jesus, right? Um, as he was praying, the words of uh, on, on Christ the Solid Rock uh, were kind of going through my mind. And I was thinking, there is a guy whose faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed, but in the ever living one. And, and, um, and just Rex's... Um, love of Jesus and knowledge of Jesus and walking with Jesus and having been with Jesus um, led me to a point where I was like, Lord, that's, that's what I want. I, I want to be 75 years old and, and people go, wow, that guy's been with Jesus. And, and just Rex's life and words led me into deeper worship of our savior. Um, and, and it's, um, it's similar to those of you who've read any history, um, there, like, you know, George Whitfield and, and, uh, those guys who were part of, of, um, kind of the, the movement of God to that, that became kind of, um, the great awakening. Um, there, there was a, a story about, uh, a, a philosopher from Scotland uh, who was a skeptic and he was very antagonistic towards the gospel. His name was David Hume. And David Hume um, on one occasion was seen heading towards a George Whitfield rally where George Whitfield was going to preach. And someone saw him and said, Hey, David, I, I didn't think that you believed in the gospel. And he said, I don't, but George Whitfield does. And, and Whitfield's conviction was so compelling that a skeptic wanted to hear it because he knew that guy's got something, right? Um, when, when our faith shapes us to such an extent that our lives and our message are perfectly aligned, we have spiritual authority to speak into the lives of other people. I, I think all of us would like to have spiritual authority, right? All of us would like to have the ability to influence our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members with the gospel. All of us would like to be able to, to speak and, and people go, I want to hear what they have to say because, because all of us long to see wholeness come to our friends, but we, we feel like, man, I don't, I don't have their ear in the way that someone who, who maybe has spiritual authority in a way I don't would have it. I think as we look at, at Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah chapter 5, we see an example of spiritual authority. My apologies. Um, it's true, Nehemiah had a position of authority. Uh, it's true that um, the people of Israel had, had neglected authorities, even God's authority, for so many years that, that God had put them into exile, and God had to call them back to his authority. They had rejected prophets, and they had rejected godly kings, and they had rejected God's law. And so here was a people who they had some of the best spiritual authority ever, and yet they had rejected it. And then comes along Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is, is um, being involved as they are being called in, out of exile, and they're being called to rebuild the city, and, and they are beginning to return to the land. And, and in the midst of this, Nehemiah is there, and Nehemiah becomes positionally in authority because of his spiritual authority. Nehemiah chapter 5 paints a picture of a nation in crisis, and it's probably uh, uh, something that we can identify with because their crisis is around debt. 
There, if, if you think about it this way, the U.S. national debt, I looked last night, um, it's at 26.7 trillion dollars. It is growing by more than a million dollars every 20 seconds. Um, there are 26.7 million unemployed people in the United States. There are 36 million people living in poverty. The average American is carrying $137,000 in debt, 11,000 of which is on their credit card, and 10,000 of it is, is due because of their car loans. Um, the average American spends more than $3,000 a year just on credit card loan debt um, uh, interest and car interest. Those, those two, they pay $3,000 a year in interest on those two things alone. And so the, the people of Israel are in far worse condition than even we are. The men had been um, working on the wall and they went home to find that their children were hungry and their wives were angry. And, and there was um, domestic strife because they were heading towards starvation and they didn't have enough food just to put on the table. And, and landowners were mortgaging their, their um, land just to be able to buy grain. And they knew that because of the famine, that, that they were likely going to lose their land because when the mortgage came due at the harvest, they weren't going to have enough to pay for it. Taxes were being demanded of people by foreign rulers who were oppressing Israel. And, and they would have to take loans from loan sharks, essentially, um, and in order to just pay the taxes. And, and um, these predatory lenders were there, and they were hoping to snatch up whatever they could. And, and even though Ezekiel and Ezekiel 22 had made it plain that this kind of, of interest, the interest that they were charging, um, uh, was basically extortion, and it was an abomination before God. The people of Israel were still practicing these things. People were having to sell their children, I mean, into slavery. They were, they were, um, and, and you have to think, in, in this time, there was um, the idea of being able to be sold into slavery, but the Hebrew people had a law that, that when you were sold into slavery, you were not to be treated as a slave, as property. You were to be treated as a co-worker, and then six years later, no matter what, you were to be freed and all your debts were to be canceled. And so that was what God's law had said. But people were not living by that. And, and they were sticking people into slavery and then they were being perpetually enslaved and they were selling people to the nations and they were selling so much so they they sold some of their children and their daughters were sold to the surrounding nations and their daughters were being pulled into a sex trade i mean it was a, a really awful it was as ugly as it could possibly be in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is experiencing poverty and famine and debt and enslavement and, and the horror of the sex trade in a city called the City of Peace. That's what Jerusalem means, the City of Peace. And so people are angry and people are despondent and people are cynical. And they're cynical of their countrymen. They're cynical of their leaders. They're cynical of the wealthy who are controlling the land. <coughs> they're cynical of people who would enslave their children. And they are cynical of God himself, who has said, I will call you from the nations and I will gather you together and you will be my people. And so Jerusalem rises up. And as they rise up, they, they are 
so frustrated with the injustices of the debt that they're carrying that they can't dig out of. And so who do they blame for their grievances? Who, who do the landowners go to and say, hey, we're about to lose our land? Who do the, the, these men go to that say, I don't have any food put on the table? They go to Nehemiah. And it's on Nehemiah's shoulders to, to right the wrongs. And it's on Nehemiah's shoulders to confront the wealthy nobles and, and say, hey, you can't keep exacting this interest. And it's on Nehemiah's shoulders to call the people to peace and unity when they're about to split into anarchy. And so interestingly, it is his spiritual authority and not his positional authority that turns the tide in this crisis. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, now there arose a great outcry from the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. They're literally, we, we are one meal away from, from starving. There are also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. This is, they've been put into the sex trade. But it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. We have no way of reclaiming or buying them back or redeeming them. Nehemiah says, I was angry when I heard these words. And I counseled myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you're exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. Yet, Nehemiah is confronted with, with something that's absolutely terrible. And he courageously confronts the problem. But to courageously confront the problem, he has to start by confronting his own emotions. He says, I was angry when I heard these words. It, the, the, the problem was an emotional one. It was one that, that made him extremely angry. And he knew that he needed to confront his emotions because in order to address this, he needed more than just passion. He needed more than just conviction. He needed more than his anger. And so he took counsel and then he brought charges. And so he confronts the problem by confronting the people who are causing the problem. And he says, you are exacting interest. In, in chapter five, verse seven, this, this is uh, something that, that we look at and go, okay, no big deal, right? Exacting interest, big deal. Like we're used to paying interest. In, in fact, here in the United States, we have subprime auto financing, right? Um, there was a, a guy in our church in Dallas who started an auto financing company and his entire business was subprime auto financing. And he would charge 25 to 35% interest. And he's like, oh, well, it's people buying credit. But really it wasn't. It was people who were desperate for transportation and they charged so much interest that people never paid on the principal. And eventually they got upside down and they, they couldn't make the payment and they collected on a car that they had only paid interest on and the people still owed the note. And, and this, is, this is what these people are, they're exacting interest. And in Exodus chapter 22, God said, if you lend to one of my people, charge no interest. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, do not charge your brother interest, whether on money or food or anything else that could earn interest. And, and so here's, here's his charge to them is you are um, exacting interest. You are doing exactly what God said not to do. And, and he, he goes on and he says, 
I said to them, we, uh, as far as we're able, have bought back our Jewish brothers and that have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Like we are doing everything we can to bring people back to the land, to buy back the people that the nations have, have purchased and to make sure that God can gather back his people into this place so that he can keep his promise. And you, meanwhile, are selling them thinking, eh, Nehemiah and this team are going to buy them back anyway. And, and so essentially you are selling people to us. And so uh, Leviticus chapter 25 um, it makes it really clear what, what it is that Israel's supposed to do. In Leviticus 25, it says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest or profit from him, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him food for profit. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee, and then he shall go out from you, he and his children with them, and go back to his own clan and return his, his, the possessions of his father's. For they are my servants, whom I have bought out of the land, and they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but you shall fear God. And, and Nehemiah is saying, hey, look, th this is not right. He, say, he says they were silent and couldn't find a word to say. And he said, the, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations and the enemies. He's referring to Leviticus 25 that three times says, fear God. I am the God who purchased them. I am the God who re received them and took them out of Egypt. I am the God who rescued them. They are my servants. They are not your slaves. And you are to treat them as my servants and not as your slaves. And so you do that because I am God. I am Yahweh. I'm the covenant keeper who rescued you. You are just like them and you are to treat them like yourself. And so Nehemiah confronts them and it confronts the problem and confronts the people. And, and then he, he, he says something that is kind of a little bit, uh, I don't know. He, he becomes an example in, in even his confession. He says, moreover, I and my brothers and servants are lending them money and grain. Now, Nehemiah is not charging interest, but he is, he has been lending. And, and what he is about to say as he identifies with those who are charging interest and says, let us abandon the exacting of interest and return to them this very day, their fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain and wine and oil that you have been exacting from them, right? So he's not doing that, but he is loaning them. And what he is about to say is, look, um, as an example, I, I want to say I have become part of the problem. I'm lending and they can't pay me back. And, and I'm not exacting interest, but I've become part of the problem because I'm not giving freely. I'm lending like you're lending. The difference is that you're lending and you're exacting interest. So together, we are part of the problem. So together, let's solve this problem. And we want to return to them all of their stuff. 
and not exact any interest. And we want to give it freely, not lend. We want to give it to them. And so he becomes an example and says, look, I've been part of the problem and I'm not going to be part of the problem anymore. And you've been part of the problem and I'm calling you away from it. And so let's restore to them and require nothing in return. And they said, we will restore these and we will require nothing from them and we will do as you say. And so through Nehemiah's example, he is leading them and he is showing them this is the way that we should go. And they say, okay, we're going to do it. And he says, okay, I'm going to make sure that you do it. And so he calls the priests and he made them swear to do as they promised. And he also, he says, I also took the fold of my garment and I said, so may God shake out every man from his house from his labor who does not keep this promise so that he may be shaken out and emptied. We, we don't necessarily understand what that's about because we have pockets in our clothes. We don't have folds in our clothes. These people, they, they, had, uh, they were in the desert. They were in hot places. They had kind of billowy clothes and they would make folds and their folds would carry things around and they would have them in the folds of their garment. And if you shook out the folds of your garment, everything that you had would end up on the ground. So we're, it's like he's turning out his pockets and he's saying, as, as this stuff hits the ground and people are watching as stuff's flying around and he's shaking it out and saying, so too, may God shake you out. May God just decimate your house and your labor and, and everything that you touch if you do not keep this promise. It, all of a sudden, this covenant was a covenant with a curse. And it was a promise. We, we are so serious about, about our commitment before God to do this, to, to do what it is that he wants. We are not going to lend. We are going to give. We are not going to exact interest. We're going to give it all back. We are going to do. And, and he says, so may it be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, so be it. Amen. Let that happen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. And so Nehemiah has confronted the problem. Nehemiah has led them through his example, but Nehemiah knows that he needs to continue to lead through his example. And, and he understands that, that and th this is the greatest statement, I think, in, in the whole chapter. Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. Now, remember, back in chapter two, um, Nehemiah has gone to Artaxerxes, and he said, look, I want to go, and I want to rebuild the wall, and I want to take all this land with me, or all this property with me, all this wood, and, and I want to, and, and part of that is I want to build a governor's mansion for me to live in because I want to rule these people, and I want you to give letters, and I want you to allow me to go, and, and everybody will know that I'm in charge. And so even though Artaxerxes has said yes, you're my guy. You're going to go lead this. And even though Nehemiah has gotten there and he has begun to build the wall and people have begun to follow him, from this time on, he was appointed to be their governor. It, it was like he had been given a position, but they recognized it when he, through his spiritual authority, was given in their mind positional authority. Okay, now you can rule over us because you have confronted this problem and you have led by example. And so he continues to lead by his example. And, and he understands that, that spiritual authority 
can evaporate in a moment's time, right? I think about what happened this week. Um, uh, I went to Liberty University. And so um, for me to watch what's happened uh, at the college that I graduate from and see Jerry Falwell Jr. in just a moment of time, um, like one new cycle, and, and there is no spiritual authority that he'll ever hold again, right? It's just, it's not going to happen. Spiritual authority can be lost in a moment, but it is certainly not gained overnight. And it's not kept in in just a, a moment of time. It is kept through um, what uh, I think it's Eugene Peterson has a book called uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Um, it's, it's spiritual authority is gained through the long obedience. And so here's, here's what it says about Nehemiah. From, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. Now, this is something that was their right, but they chose not to. The, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, and they took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver, which, is, I mean, it's, it's probably like us saying they were taxed 40% to be able to feed the governor. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. Why? Because of fear of God. I also perceived in the it, it persevered. I can't get the word out. Persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land. Why did he acquire no land? Because if he had acquired land, he would have had to acquire it from someone who was so poor that they were selling their land, and so he did not do that. We acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Here's. He's been sent servants by Artaxerxes. They're there to serve him. They're there to make sure his food is prepared. They're there to make sure that his clothes are clean. They're there to make sure he's taken care of. And he goes, no, you're all going to work on the wall. And all of his servants are redirected. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, that, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. He understands that, that being an example is something that he has to do over time, and he has to continue to live this out. That I was reminded, um, those of you who know who Mother Teresa is, um, Mother Teresa, Catholic um, uh, nun uh, who served in Calcutta, right? Um, in 1946, she said she experienced a call. Uh, and her call was to leave the convent where she was and to feed the poor while living among them. And, and she said it was an order to, to have not obeyed would have been to break faith with God. And, and so she, for two years, tried to figure out how will I do this? And she petitioned the Vatican to start something called the Mission of Charity, a group committed to the poor and the abandoned and the dying in Calcutta. And it took another two years. So four years from the time that she said, I felt this call to go live among people and, and to care for them as they're dying. It took four years to get approval to do it. And so she went to Calcutta. And in 1952, she received permission from uh, the officials there in Calcutta to, uh, to take over an abandoned Hindu temple and to turn it into a hospital. Well, the Muslim and the Hindus hated her and they treated her with disdain and anger and distrust. And, and it wasn't until um, a couple of years of, of serving there that there was a Hindu, Hindu priest who had gone to the hospital and he was denied a bed at the hospital because they knew that he was terminally ill. And they said, you can just go die on the street. 
And, and she took him in when the hospitals wouldn't. And for, for whatever reason, that was the turning point. And people's hearts began to turn towards her and go, you know what? She's the real thing. She's, she's willing to care for the people that our people aren't willing to care for. And over the next 40 years, she started 517 missions in 100 countries. And the thing that, that, that struck me is I, I never heard much about Mother Teresa until 1994. In 1994, Mother Teresa got up at the National Prayer Breakfast and she spoke out against abortion in America. And, and she, she said that abortion was an abomination before God. And she said that abortion was, was destroying God's very image. And she stood there on the platform that the Clintons and the Gores were on who promoted abortion as part of their, their policy. And, and, and she said, um, give to me all your children. I want all the discarded children of America. Don't, don't abort your babies. Give me your babies and I will take care of them and I will find them homes and I will love them. She got done and, and a largely pro-abortion group jumped to their feet and applauded her. She had a standing ovation and, and people were kind of stunned. They were saying, how is it that this woman came in? She said the most politically incorrect things and the people who she defied are clapping for her. And there was, uh, Peggy Noonan uh, was there and she had been um, uh, somebody who, who wrote during the Reagan, Reagan era. And, and her words, I think, captured it. She said, perhaps she didn't know or care that her words were, as they say, not healing or divisive. Um, she was dividing not only Protestant from Catholic, but Catholic from Catholic. And it was also unhappily unadorned, explicit, and impolitic. And it was wonderful, like a big fresh drink of water, bracing in its directness and its uncompromising love. And Mother Teresa seemed neither to notice or care, and she finished up her speech and stand to a standing ovation, and she left as she had entered, silently through a parted curtain in a flash of blue and white. She could do this, of course, because she had some unnatural and some unknown authority. I think what she was saying is this, like that spiritual authority to be able to speak and for people to be able to say the hard thing that, that disagrees with the people you're with, but to say it in a way that they stand and clap is to say like, that is someone who has done a long obedience in the same direction. That is someone who, who has, has continued to take initiative for the good of other people and has shown that they will do that over time and, and that it's not for, for their glory or for their good. It's only for the, the good of other people. And so spiritual authority comes from um, spiritual authenticity, spiritual authenticity that's demonstrated through sacrifice. Look at what Nehemiah did, right? Nehemiah, out of fear for his God, didn't burden his people with expenses. He, he didn't stop the work on the walls. In fact, he redirected his own servants to go, to go work on the walls. He didn't require land or, or, or acquire anything, really, because he didn't want to take that away from people. He fed 150 people every single day. And then as he's praying, this is what he prays. Remember for my good, oh my God, that I have done all that I have done for this people. Now, when you read that, you, you, you tend to think like, all right, he's saying, look at everything I've done for these people. And that's not what he's saying. Um, the, the, these words uh, are sometimes need to be kind of rearranged and massaged. And, and, and an alternative translation would be, remember for my good, oh my God, that I have done all this for the sake of these people, 
right? It's, it's not that, look at everything I've done for these people. It's, no, everything I've done, I've done for them. It's, it's, um, it's his way of saying, uh, look, I, I could have asked for these things. I could have asked for money. I could have asked for land. I, I, it was within my right to do, and I laid it all aside. Why? For the good of other people. And that's what spiritual leadership really is, is any leadership is taking initiative for the good of other people. But spiritual leadership specifically is taking good initiative for the good of people to lead them to God, right? That, that is what spiritual leadership is. When you, I was reading um, Luke chapter 19 this week, and Luke chapter 19 is the, um, uh, the story of Zacchaeus. And, and if you, you know, from a Sunday school, we learn about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, right? And, and, um, and here's a short guy with an authority issue, right? Um, his name means clean and just, but he is a cheat and he is dishonest and he knows that he has a heart problem and he tries to get to Jesus and nobody wants to let him nearby because they go, oh, that's the little cheat, right? And he's, he's trying to get, and he can't get to Jesus. He can't see him. And so he climbs up in a tree and he wants to try to at least get a glimpse of Jesus. But as Jesus is approaching the city, he's having conversations with people. And one of the conversations he has, he has a conversation with a guy who's very rich and the guy says, well, what do I do to get eternal life? And he says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And that guy went away sad because he had great wealth. And then he predicts that he will die and he will rise again. And, and to prove that, that what he has said is true, he heals a blind beggar. And so Zacchaeus is wanting to get close to Jesus, but the crowd is pressing in even more. And so Jesus has to go to him. And Jesus has to find him in a tree. And Jesus has to look at him and say, Zacchaeus, um, I'm going to your house. And, and all the people begin to rumble. What do you mean? You're going to the house of a sinner. You're going, he's a tax collector. He's a liar. He's a cheat. Why would Jesus go do this? And, and then the story turns. And suddenly you see people that are excited about Zacchaeus. You go, well, how did that happen? Zacchaeus says, um, I, I, I'm going to make an announcement. I'm going to give away half of everything I have. Anybody that I have stolen from, I'm going to repay them four times. And all of a sudden, because he has shown spiritual authenticity through sacrifice, um, then he has the spiritual authority to have a house full of people who are there to, to be able to celebrate with him. And Jesus proclaims, salvation has come to your house um, because your spiritual authenticity was, was shown through your uh, sacrifice, your conviction is real because we see it that you're willing to like get rid of your stuff, the stuff that you have lived for, you have lied for, you have stolen for. You're saying, no, I'm going to start giving these things away. I'm going to start repaying everyone I've stolen from. These things aren't important. All that's important is Jesus. And when, when people see that it come to life, that's when he has the spiritual authority to have people into his home that want to hear like, hey, I, I saw this change in Zacchaeus. I want this too. Have you ever wondered how you might have spiritual authority to speak into the lives of your family or your coworkers or your friends or your neighbors? It, it starts with fearing God, right? Nehemiah, I mean, this passage three times says, it talks about the fear of God. Leviticus 25, three times talks about the fear of God. It, it begins with fear of God. And out of reverence for him, we begin to live out lives of authenticity. And that authenticity is shown through our generosity and through our sacrifice. And as, as we live that authenticity out, 
God grants us authority to speak because people see the sacrifice and people see the generosity and they, they want to hear what it is that we have to say and they want to be directed in the way that we begin to show them. This, I think largely it's because this is one of the most tangible expressions of the gospel that we can live out. Think about what it is that God did. God, in his love for us, was so generous, he did not withhold his, his own son. God, who, who was so um, uh, justly angry with us, chose to, be, to pour out his generosity in showing us his love by giving us his son. Jesus, who loved us, was willing to sacrifice himself for us and to lay down his life for us that we might have life. God took initiative for our greatest good. And and the things that oppressed us, sin and death and hell, he took care of and he faced for us. He confronted those things. And, And Jesus lived as our example. Jesus died as our substitute. Jesus rose as our savior. Jesus lives as our king. Jesus sent his spirit to live within us that we might have the life of God in Christ now and for all eternity. And so his generosity and his sacrifice were poured out in us. And that authenticated the thing that he was telling us, that he really did love us, that he really did have a plan for us. And we embrace it out of love because we can't help but embrace it out of love because of his sacrifice and because that conviction is true and it's become alive in our hearts. When we live in spiritual authenticity, when we live in spiritual generosity and spiritual sacrifice, we are taking the step showing people we fear God. And because we fear God, that spiritual authenticity gives us spiritual authority. It gives us the ability to speak into the lives of people because they see that it's real and that it's true and that it's honest. Nehemiah has people rise up against him and say, hey, this this is unjust. And what does he do? He courageously confronts the problem. He becomes an example in his conviction, in his generosity, in in his sacrifice. And the people recognize his positional authority because of his spiritual authority. God is asking you to to look at, at your spiritual authenticity, because that is going to be the foundation for spiritual authority to speak into the lives of other people. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it is true, that it is right, that it shows us the path of life. We thank you that we get to see the gospel and we get to see it worked out and we get to be part of it. Lord, we, we don't ever want to just point to Jesus as our example, but man, Jesus is our example. And we don't want to just say Jesus died in our place, but Jesus died in our place. And we thank you so much that in your generosity and in your love and in your sacrifice, you have provided a way that we can trust you and that we can know you're worth following. And so, Lord, I pray that we will be people who grow in our faith and we see your love and your generosity and your sacrifice and we say, yes, I want to follow him more. But Lord, that we will be people that take it to the next step and we say, I don't want to just follow you. I want other people to see the love and the generosity and the sacrifice that comes from God himself through Jesus, through me. And I want to be someone who is walking in spiritual authenticity and leads people through spiritual authority. Lord, thank you for your great love for us and for the cross. Thank you for the truth that we have looked at in your word this morning. We pray that you will transform us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.